This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Glenn Summerford? He was the subject of an HBO documentary titled Alabama Snake. Glenn Summerford was born sometime around 1945 in Tennessee. He was raised by his mother and never met his biological father. He was socially awkward and quiet as a child, which resulted in him being beat up by his peers. His stepfather taught him how to fight, and Glenn became quite effective at hand-to-hand -hand combat. At some point, Glenn moved to Scottsboro, Alabama. In 1963, he married a woman named Doris. They had several children. Glenn regularly consumed alcohol, engaged in fights, and was violent. Doris was careful around him because of his temper. After a trailer fire killed one of Glenn's children, his behavior only became worse. Among his many negative interactions with the law, Glenn was convicted in the late 1960s for grand larceny and burglary. These felonies would come back to haunt him later. In 1974, Glenn married a 19-year-old woman named Arlene. He had not yet divorced Doris, so he was married to both of them at the same time. Darlene would say that she was frightened of Glenn right away. She immediately regretted her decision to marry him. After Glenn and Darlene had a son named Marty, Glenn believed that God had spoken to him. Glenn took his Bible and walked into the woods for 30 days. He read the Bible and believed that he was delivered from sin. He was both redeemed and sanctified. He decided to give up fighting and drinking, although it sounds like he wasn't completely successful. Glenn became a pastor of his own Pentecostal church. A prominent feature of his services was the inclusion of rattlesnakes. This practice is not unheard of among Pentecostals in rural areas. The idea here is that church members can prove their holiness by not being bit or killed by the snakes. If they handle the snakes and remain unharmed, then they are holy and pure. If they get bit by the snake and survive, they need to reevaluate their life choices. If they don't survive, then I guess no worries. This makes me wonder, who was the first person who came up with this idea? Were they standing in a church looking around when they thought to themselves, you know what would really liven this place up? Rattlesnakes. As a pastor, Glenn proclaimed that he was a changed man. He made claims like he healed people and drove out demons. He even claimed to see a demon once. I was thinking it was when he looked in the mirror, but he said he drove a demon out of a church member. So I visualized that a little differently. Moving to the timeline of the crime. The crime in this case is an attempted murder that occurred in early October 1991. There are two different stories as to what happened, one from Glenn and one from his wife, Darlene. So the attempted murder was Glenn trying to kill Darlene. I'll start with Glenn's account then moved to Darlene's. Gwen said that the story starts on September 30, 1991. He said that Darlene was bitten by a raccoon they kept in the house. After this, Gwen saw Darlene cheating. He said that she was trying to get him to beat her up, like she was trying to antagonize him, provoke a fight. According to Gwen, 
Darlene then claimed that she had sex with her sons. Again, this was to anger Glenn. Later, one son confirmed the story, and another son denied it. Glenn said that Darlene tried to bring an end to her life using pills, but she was not successful. She then claimed that she was bitten on her hand by a rattlesnake, but Glenn didn't see any swelling on her hand. The next day, Glenn and Darlene went to a few stores. Darlene interacted with a clerk when returning some videos. The clerk did not see swelling on Darlene's hand. The next day, Darlene seemed to be doing better. Glenn went to sleep. Darlene left a note to her son, Marty. The note implied that she was going to bring an end to her life and repeatedly mentioned how Glenn was asleep, which seemed like an odd inclusion for such a note. When Glenn woke up, Darlene was gone. Now moving to Darlene's story. Darlene said that everything started when she was sleeping in a bed with Glenn. The door of the bedroom opened. She noticed a black and featureless demon standing in the doorway. It looked like a silhouette. She rebuked the demon and it left the room closing the door on its way out. It was a courteous demon. Glenn woke up during this rebuke and asked what happened. Darlene said she just rebuked a demon. Glenn did not believe her. He said, bring that demon back in here. And that's what Darlene did. I guess it's a good thing for the demon that he didn't wander too far from the room after being rebuked. Like he was saying to himself, wow, that rebuke was harsh. I don't think they really meant that. They'll invite me back in. The demon stormed back in the room and inhabited Glenn. After this, Glenn retrieved a shotgun, forced Darlene to put her hand in a snake cage, and she was bit. He apparently beat the cages with a pipe before that to get the snakes angry. The next day, they went to the store to return videos, but Darlene said that Glenn had a gun on her the whole time and promised they could go to the hospital when they were done running errands. They did not go to the hospital, Rather, Glenn drove them home. Glenn forced Darlene to put her hand in a snake cage again. She was bit for a second time. On October 4, 1991, Glenn passed out from drinking vodka. Darlene took this opportunity to call an ambulance. She was taken to the hospital and was treated. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Glenn was arrested and convicted for attempted murder. Because of a law regarding habitual offenders in Alabama, he was sentenced to 99 years in prison. 
On February 21, 2003, Glenn was on a work detail when he escaped. He was found in a dumpster 45 minutes later. 30 years was added to his sentence. The story about Glenn Summerford spending time in a dumpster is terrible. It's hard to imagine what that dumpster went through. Now moving to my analysis. Was Glenn Summerford actually guilty of attempted murder? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea of guilt, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Darlene sustained snake bites that could have killed her. She called for an ambulance, but asked that they not turn their flashing lights on, as if she was afraid that Glenn would find out. She wrote a note that appeared to give Glenn an alibi, as if she was forced to write it. Darlene accused Glenn of committing the crime, and Glenn had a history of violence. Moving to the exculpatory evidence. There were no witnesses, there's no video, there's no physical evidence to tie Glenn to the crime. Glenn denied the allegations. Darlene interacted with a store clerk after she was allegedly bit by a snake. Darlene never asked for help, and the clerk did not see swelling on Darlene's hand, as I mentioned. There was a 23-year-old woman who was a surprise witness during the trial. She testified that she had talked to Darlene after the alleged attempted murder. Darlene indicated that she went to get the snake to kill Glenn, who was sleeping, and that's when she was bit. It's worth noting that the prosecutors produced a witness who said that the surprise witness had stayed in Glenn's house several nights. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Glenn was guilty? I think that he was guilty, but not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The trial essentially came down to a he said, she said. Both parties produced difficult-to-believe stories containing their own bizarre perceptions and decisions. Glenn, with his lengthy list of Darlene's inexplicable and antagonistic behaviors, and Darlene with her account of the late-night demon visitor who was rebuked only to be invited back in the room by a disbelieving Glenn. It sounds like both of them were drinking and struggling to understand reality. I would say that this is a case where there is no credible evidence in either direction. Therefore, a guilty verdict is not indicated. The only thing that was proven beyond a reasonable doubt is that these two people made bizarre lifestyle choices. I think that Glenn was convicted because of his unusual religious beliefs and his very bad reputation. The jury might have figured that anybody who would surround themselves with a bunch of snakes was looking for trouble. Now moving to the next question. What is the role of the snakes? As I mentioned, Glenn started his own church after realizing the error of his ways. The church was named Church of Jesus Christ with Signs Following. I'm not exactly sure what's meant by that name. Are the signs following behind the church, or are the signs like extra, like a person can go to church with or without signs based on their personal preference? I guess the signs are supposed to be evident in the behavior of the rattlesnakes. Glenn's church appeared to be based on an interpretation of the Bible, where the church members believe they are immune from all types of harm, including snakes. Handling snakes is a way of testing their faith. Snakes represent the devil. Therefore, if they can hold the devil without being harmed, they are righteous. Essentially, the snakes function as an assessment, like it's a quick test so the church members can figure out if they're still going to heaven. In reality, of course, it is a way of testing their intelligence and common sense, and the results are in. They failed. In addition to the obvious problems brought about by handling snakes, the snakes create confusion. 
I can only imagine the church members looking at Glenn, holding a snake, and wondering which one is supposed to be the devil. Who's to say that the snake isn't holy for not being bit by Glenn? Moving to the next question, what about Glenn's redemption experience? It is not unusual for career criminals to claim to find redemption in mid or late life. What is unusual is that the criminal would start their own church and pretend like they have good advice for other people. Essentially, Glenn was just perpetrating a fraud, and he chose to handle rattlesnakes as a dramatic way to convince his followers. This was not an idea he invented, but he probably was attracted to it because of its simplicity, and it played to one of his strengths, fearlessness. Extreme fearlessness can lead people to introduce risk that is unnecessary. And wherever there is a fearless leader, there will be followers who want to obtain that same characteristic. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.